What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidit Tagawal, and let's get started. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So um, I was fortunate enough to have saved a bit of money, so I was going to go around the world, and I literally did an entire world trip, um, just finding myself. But finding yourself sounds so glamorous. It's really, really difficult mentally, because you are lost. You have no idea what you want to do. And in a way, the more options you ha- have, the harder it becomes. The more um, I literally was unlimited in terms of like the countries I could be working in, the different areas I could be working in. And for the first two or three months, it was super fun. Like I would just go like go a trip in the Amazon, travel for Colombia, and etc. etc. After two or three months, I, my fingers started itching and like I really need to do something. That's Michael Batko, and this is episode fifty-seven. A big reason I keep doing this podcast is to gain actual insights from people like Michael and apply them to my life. So I've got two pages of notes from this conversation, so I'd highly recommend getting a notepad at the ready. Michael was born in Vienna, Austria, to Polish parents, and had quite a humble sunrise. His explorer mindset took him to Australia, where he's been for the past seven years. Now, a number of people I spoke to in the lead up to this conversation spoke about Michael's drive for excellence, his habits and routines, and being a reliable friend and colleague. So hear about the secrets that have helped Michael become this person. And it's worth noting, we can all do it if we want to. I love the candid reflections Batko has of being lost in 2018, traveling the world and figuring out his purpose in life. And then through hustling and increasing his surface area for luck to strike, he scored a role at Startmate. Australia's leading startup accelerator. And now he's their CEO. Talk about believing in yourself. We also discuss his most painful learning. How does an accelerator make money in an industry known for challenging economics? And stay tuned for four points as he shares on what it takes to build a great community. I feel like I learn something new every time we speak, so please do enjoy and let me know your thoughts. Michael Batko, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited to have you on. Now, let's let's do some fun facts to give the listeners a bit of perspective. So, where, where were you born and where do you live now? Um, I was born in Vienna. So, I actually have Polish parents and my whole family lives in, in Poland and Canada, actually. But I was born in Vienna. And I've been in Australia for seven years and kind of bounced around between Melbourne and, um, and Sydney. Um, and actually spent the last two years in Newcastle. Um, but now, I am in Melbourne. <laughs> Mm. And what was your first job and what do you do now? All right. Well, uh, my first job was as an entertainer in an all-inclusive hotel in Greece. I was jumping up and down and motivating people to oh, play wow. football and volleyball. And uh, and that was awesome because it was kind of the idea of 
how can I have a job but also have fun at the same time? <laughs> and um, now I'm the CEO at Startnet, where I feel like I do the same thing. <laughs> um, but on a way larger scale with founders and people wanting to join startups and people wanting to invest in startups. Mm. And, and now given the name of the show, it's all about reimagining a high flyer. Is there a high flyer in your life that perhaps hasn't got the recognition to date? Yeah, so the first person who comes to mind is um, Mason Yates, um, associate at Blackbird. And um, Mason and I have been friends for um, three, four years now. And um, Mason just is an incredible person who really listens, ha- always has great questions, now runs a podcast as well called Wild Hearts, which he is incredible at. Um, and it's just this kind of person who is going to make it really, really far away in the next couple of years. Mm, and I actually saw, I think there was a beach photo on Instagram today. Uh, I don't know if that was from this morning or that was from earlier in the week, but yeah, that was in Bondi, I believe. <laughs> That's Good right. Enough. So we're close friends. So we just went for a run in the swim on Bondi, which was lovely. How good. Best way to start the day, right? Awesome. Now let's zoom out. That going to talk about your sunrise, your childhood, um, and, and you mentioned the Polish-Austrian heritage and upbringing. Tell me about that. Like, what was the what are your memories of your family and your environment? So, I guess my first kind of memory, so like um, what my parents told me from my childhood, is that um, they only spoke Polish to me. And when I then started kindergarten or preschool, um, I was dropped into a school and not knowing a single word of German because I grew up in Vienna. And so I kind of had to learn that on, the, on <laughs> along the way. And so I was um, raised with Polish and German at the same time. And my memories um, from back then, I guess our family was um, didn't have much money. Um, my parents immigrated to Austria um, around the Cold War, kind of like fall of the war around like the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and... Um, and my dad Luci um, was working on a building site himself and kind of supporting the family in a tiny little flat. So I remember like sharing my room with my sister for like until the age of I think like 14 or so. Um, and then gradually he was like working his way up and up and up and then started actually buying property and making um, a fair bit of money on this one. So we just gradually um, had more money in the family. You kind of kind of really feel that over our teenagehood, um, which was, yeah, just a really forming experience. And and who would you say were your influences looking back? Was it your family or was it other people in your in your close environment? I think it um two parts here. Like one was definitely my parents. Um just seeing them work so hard um and really care about me and my sister was just super inspirational because um we didn't have much as a family, but they always wanted the best for me and my sister. They put us into um, so many different extracurricular activities and the best schools, which we probably couldn't afford. But it was like so important to them for us to get the, the right education. And the other influence in my life, um, my two best friends who I met, um, I mean, in Austria, school works slightly differently. So you're in high school from the age of 10 to 18 with the same set of people actually for eight years. Mm-hmm. So two of my closest friends until this date actually come from um, that high school years. And we actually still have, um, it, we actually catch up every single week and just up keep each other posted and there's still some of my close friends how good is that even though you're living in the other side of the world and and tell me about like now looking back like you said you've been in australia for i think seven eight years what do you carry from that austrian polish heritage and the reason i ask that is because i've got a couple of friends that are from the netherlands and they've got a very 
it's fascinating kind of that European influence because it's their focuses in life are very different. They don't really care about the material things as much. It's more about the people they're around, nature. And I know you're a big fan of nature and you're a big fan of kind of being creative and kind of expressing yourself. <laughs> what do you think now looking back, it might be a bit of a deep question, so I apologize if it is, but what do you think looking back you've carried that you now see in Australia that you're like, you're glad you've got that Austrian heritage? Yeah, so I'm not necessarily sure if it's like Austrian heritage, but I feel like maybe like a bit of a European attitude. I think comes from um, one direction specifically, which is I was moving around so much in Europe. Like um, I was really lucky to do lots of language exchanges to Russia, to France, to the UK, to the US. And then I moved out of home when I was 18 and studied in like four or five different countries. I worked in a couple of different countries and and one of the things which I really carried with the kind of European freedom with me is, um, is exactly that of, like you said, like not many material goods. I would literally just like have one suitcase, move to Australia. And that's also the reason I love moving between cities in Australia and kind of like not being bound to anywhere, which is um, maybe the other flip side of that is probably a commitment problem to like staying somewhere in one place. <laughs> And which I absolutely love. Like I, I thrive on new experiences. That's probably the best summary here. And did you have any heroes growing up? Did you have any posters on the wall, the people you looked up to? Um, actually, no. Like I'm going to answer the question of like, I never had a hero as such in my life. I didn't, I don't actually believe in famous people. Okay, <laughs> I yeah. couldn't care less about um, somebody being famous or when people look up to somebody because I always just see them as... Um, as as just another person and once you get to know them you're just like i could be that person so like maybe one of my favorite quotes is always the one of and when you look around the world you realize that everything has been created by people who are no smarter than yourself so that's probably why like i don't necessarily have those heroes to look up to yeah I love that. I love that so much. I think that resonates with the show. I always tell my friends is like everyone started in the same place. Like no one was born a celebrity. They achieved that success and they're still a human being at the end of the day. So love that. And yeah. and if we think about when you were 16, 17, you had some understanding of the world of yourself. What was success to you at that age? Like what would you? 16, what did you want to achieve in life? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. 16, 17, I wanted to become a professional volleyball player. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I was um, massively into sports and that was kind of like success, success for me. Um, I think then slightly later, 17, 18, um, I really got um, a flavor or like I really wanted to um, go beyond Austria. Austria is a very small country of 8 million people. And um, I did actually even back then have that ambition of like, I really want to have an impact on a global scale. I don't even know where that kind of ambition came from. Um, but it was just a really strong drive I had when as a 17, 18 year old that I have to study outside of Austria and I have to study in an English speaking country, which is when I started exploring studying in the UK, the US and Australia. And Australia was too far away at the time. The US was way too expensive in terms of studying. So the UK was kind of the next logical choice. So it's kind of like what I wanted to do, yeah. And and one of the things I've noticed about you is you like doing a lot of different things. Like if someone goes through your Instagram, I know when we spoke last time, I think in October, you were doing the draw every day, run every day. You're doing a bit of kite surfing, meditating. And, and I've spoken to a few people they've described you as having this drive for excellence. Where do you think that comes from? Like, do you connect that back to your sunrise and your upbringing? Do you think it comes from there where you didn't come from much and you had to kind of create your own path? Or is it just something you've learned through life? Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I don't... So maybe just to describe this a little bit 
um, in my in my words, and also like where it comes from. Where it comes from is also interesting to think about. But um, in in my words, people always think that I do so many things. But in, in, <laughs> I actually even don't even think I do that many things. I just almost like create those habits and rhythms for myself to just um, do them without thinking. And and maybe where this comes from a little bit is it definitely comes from my upbringing a little bit, but maybe from my, like a weird and negative space, which is I have a terrible short term memory. Um, mm. and like, I just don't remember things. So I have to write down everything and I need to kind of create, um, lists and structures for myself because I don't want to be remembering and storing things in my brain. It's one of those things of like your brain is um, made to process data. It's not there to store data <laughs> or like the, that's the way I think about it. So out of that place of having a terrible short term memory, I then started creating those systems and habits for myself that. You just consciously, like you don't unconsciously do them because they're just part of your rhythms. And so the reason I do so many different new things in, is because I've created those kind of constants for myself to just push myself um, beyond that comfort zone and and just like always, always think about them. Um, so maybe just like um, another example here, that, sorry, going on a bit of a segue here, but maybe just to illustrate this a little bit. Um, when I had my first full-time job, when I was working in a professional um, capacity, which I actually define as starting in um, in Expert for Sixty, which was a startup in Australia, and um, I was really working really late, um, late hours, long hours, and I kind of had this whole idea of like, well, my life's just going to run away from me, and I'm, all I'm going to do is work. So actually, pretty quickly, I decided to um, again like create this structure and this rhythm for myself, which was every single week. I would do something that I've never done before in my life. And I would then put, put it out online. And what I mean, put it online, I would literally start a blog, which I wouldn't even tell anybody about, just to hold myself accountable. And I was one of those structures where I was like, I love going beyond my comfort zone. I love creating this structure. And every single week, no matter how big or small, I would do something that I've never done before in my life. And I did that then for like three and a half years off the back of that. How amazing. I think the takeaway there for listeners is just have a go, right? Start somewhere and don't think too big. Just start baby steps and you'll get somewhere. Um, nice. Now let's go into, let's go to magic moments, Betco. And this is probably the segment listeners love the most because it really unpacks you, some of your painful learning, some of your people you've met, some of the experiences you had. The first one I probably want to ask is, and, I, and you mentioned about blogging, and I and I tried to read some of your blogs leading up to this. And one of them I read was in 2018, where you did your year in review. And you spoke about sort of being lost, I think was the word you used. You were applying for jobs. I think you might have been traveling. You were in Thailand, and you were kind of figuring out what you want to do. And I know you've spoken about this, but tell us about that period, because I think a lot of listeners of the show would resonate with that right and particularly in today's world where there's this social pressure to be perfect and post the good things on linkedin <laughs> and, and, and i know life's worked out better for you now but in hindsight what were two of the biggest things you learned from that one about yourself and mm-hmm. one about the world yeah totally um love that and if i don't answer the question let ask me that again because i'll tell you the story first um yeah, it is exactly that of like, if you look at somebody's career, it can be like, oh yeah, everything worked out in their favor and they knew exactly where they wanted to go and they had all of those moments which were consciously designed. And then 99% of the cases, it's absolutely not true. It's all serendipity, serendipity and luck. And this particular story, which you mentioned, was a pivotal moment in my life, which um, I moved to Australia roughly seven years ago. I then had two startup jobs, which I loved. Um, but after that, and I decided to leave the startup um, I was at 
and um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So um, I was fortunate enough to have saved a bit of money. So I was going to go around the world and I literally did an entire world trip and just finding myself. But finding yourself sounds so glamorous. It's really, really difficult mentally because you are lost. You have no idea what you want to do. And in a way, the more options you ha have, the harder it becomes, the more... Um, I literally was unlimited in terms of like the countries I could be working in, the different areas I could be working in. And for the first two or three months, it was super fun. Like I would just go like go a trip in the Amazon, travel through Colombia and et cetera, et cetera. After two or three months, I, my fingers started itching. me like, I really need to do mm. something. And, um, and without giving it away, um, I essentially then um, traveled, kept traveling and started looking for jobs, wasn't getting anywhere. I still remember my trip was actually coming to an end because I was kind of running out of money, but also out of places to go. And I was in Kuala Lumpur in a hostel, in like a capsule hostel as well. So you literally had like a capsule which you were sleeping in and like completely enclosed. It was pouring down rain in typical Malaysian style. And I was just like, I have no idea where my life is going. I have no leads or anything. And, and there was definitely a time when I was lost um, and, and to your question of like, what did I learn about myself and, and about the world? Well, one of the things I started doing that is, um, is I made the decision of, right, I need to limit myself somewhere here. Like, and for me, it was the one of, instead of helping one startup, can I be helping 50 or hundred startups here? Cause I loved it. And I love scaling myself and having a big impact on people. So then I was like, all right, cool. So that means I need to go into venture capital or accelerators. I was like, all right, venture capital isn't quite right for me. Um, I don't resonate that strongly with the investment side. And, um, but I love actually hands on helping, um, founders in accelerators. So then I actually created this list of 150 accelerators around the world, which was a bit of a problem because there was a lot of people on the, on that list. It was literally like in Tel Aviv and South Africa and San Francisco. And I, I would literally like cold email every single accelerator in the world. Like when I mean cold email, I would literally send an email to hello at yc.com kind of thing. And, <laughs> um, and most of the accelerators never even replied. So out of 150, probably like 120 never even replied. And like you have a handful which tell you they don't have jobs because accelerators are terrible cash flow businesses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but what I learned about myself um, is exactly that of like the impact I want to have on the world is that one. And then I just went all out there and and kind of spread the word. And the second thing that I learned about the world is kind of the one of um, you have to put yourself out there. The only way people can help you is if you tell them how they can help you, which I love always summarizing as um, increasing your service area for luck to strike. Because the best thing I actually did back then is I literally put it out on my Facebook and be like, hey, I'm looking for a job in an accelerator. And um, and again, just serendipity, like yeah, a friend connected me to another friend, connected me to another friend, and that led to ultimately the job I received, which was um, as head of operations at the time at Startmate. So after a six-month world trip, I landed all the way back in Australia again. <laughs> mm, that, that tell the universe thing is something I love. My mom, mom always tells me that. She's like, tell the universe and there's a way things will start to happen. They might not happen straight away, but they'll start to happen. And I could not agree more. And I think a lot of people stop. That's the point. They don't, they, they don't put themselves out there and then they don't 
get to where they want to get to. Mm. You mentioned around startup um, accelerators not making money. Let's put a pin on that and come back to that. That's something mm-hmm. I do want to understand is how to start and make money. So yeah. we'll come back to that. Now, focusing on you, is there a painful learning that you've had in your life that, that stands out for you that was painful in the moment but you've learned the most from? One of the most impactful feedback points which I've had was in the startup I previously alluded to. Um, which was Expert for 60, a marketplace for freelance consultants. And at the time when I joined, there was seven, eight people and I was working directly with the co-founders, um, Emily and Bridget. And um, I still remember this because I was pretty, um, I was very junior, like one of my first professional jobs. And I always thought you had to do, like I, I'll do this financial model for like our Series B fundraising. And I was just like, oh my God, it's like a lot of money and it's going to be depend on the future of the company. So I'd like work day and night and wicked to like get it done and like get it done perfectly, like model out every single thing. And I still remember this moment where um, Emily came up to me on like a really late night, but a two hours, but just like the last ones in the office, just eating dinner together and just told me this thing of like, you really need to stop being a perfectionist and end adopt an 80-20 rule. And I didn't even know what an 80-20 rule was back then. So she explained it to me that like with um, 20% of the effort, you actually usually get 80% of the outcome. And that is totally okay. And you don't have to be striving for the extra 10, 20% at the end because it takes you so much more time and effort. And I that completely blew my mind since then. It was one of those feedback points which like stung at the beginning because I was like, oh, so you don't want me to be doing those perfect models. But then... Like my, it changed my entire kind of approach to how I work after that. On the show, we talk a lot about be 1% better every day. And I know you're a big believer in one percenters. Mm. Can you give us a few one percenters mm. that you've kind of incorporated into your life the past two years? If you, the reason I say two years is we've been living in COVID and you've probably spent a lot of time working from home. What mm. have been some of the one percenters you've incorporated into your life or deleted out of your life that's made you a better person? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of um, good examples. And um, I can give you um, three specific ones. And the first ones are kind of the, the obvious ones where like um, the first one is kind of sport. So, um, for example, um, I I, do, I run every day, Monday to Friday for five kilometers. And it's kind of like just a one-off. Like you just do something consistently and you're going to get better at it. And it doesn't matter how hard it is. And you just always increase in it. The second kind of one percenter is the one of um, of again just a habit, which is a meditation for myself. So it's just like even just taking those ten minutes of with like of just being there by yourself and going deep inside. Like that is the thing which actually stacks and comes pounds and that makes you a happier person. And the other one percenter um, is maybe even a bit of a um, a bit of a cheat in a way because it's not even like it's something you do that makes you instantly 1% better but it's actually like even more compounding than that which is literally so simple which is just asking for feedback mm-hmm. and I do that so often like I um, I hit up people straight away after presentations hey what did you um, think or make the question even more specific of like what did you remember because it's such an important thing after presentations for example I do um we do 360 reviews every um, every six months at StartMate where everybody gets to give you feedback. We do so many feedback points and different programs at StartMate as well. But the reason why I'm saying that there's like a one percent is just a one of like feedback often stings at 
first, but it always, always um, results in a better outcome because you can reflect on whether it's applicable or not, and you can always adjust and adopt. And and that has actually been like the biggest thing to propel me for my life. Mm. To listeners, when you do listen to this episode, please do share your feedback. Reach out directly to Michael <laughs> yes, and, and let him know what you think. Now, Michael, I, I went around and asked a few people for some questions, some people in the ecosystem that know you, and, and Nick Crocker, was, who's our mutual friend that introduced us. He's got a question here. He says that, You've been described as a perfect colleague. You're timely, you're organized, nothing is ever too much to ask. How do you maintain the energy to be that way? It's, I don't know, it's just so core to who I am in a way. Like, um, I. You don't even have to put the energy. Yeah, I just want to be, um, I want to have my brand, which is one of trust and reliability, and to, and I want to everybody to kind of have that vision of me so in a way of like when i am um, respect somebody and when to, when i want to be close to them like i always will go the extra mile to exactly that of like just the basics of being timely but also just like a fast response and a high quality response and the energy itself comes from a place of um this is just kind of who i am and it's kind of like just the trust in the brand i am creating for myself um, so yeah, I don't necessarily have to expand anything. If anything, it's kind of like all of my other habits and rhythms take care of the boring stuff. And I actually get to spend lots of stuff on the exciting ones, which is exactly that of like helping people. And can I ask the opposite of that? And this, this might be off schedule. So feel free to, feel free to ignore the question. I'm sure you've worked with people that aren't on the same wavelength as you. They don't have the same productivity mechanisms, efficiency. There might be a bit of laziness. And that sounds like that, that would be the opposite to you. And I'm sure you've done that in your career, right? Either now or in the past or some of the start, um, founders you work with. How do you adjust your approach when you work with people like that that might not be of the same wavelength as you and can't run every morning and meditate and they'd rather sleep in and wake up at 10 a.m. and have a coffee? Do mm. you adjust your approach when you work with those people? Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. Like every single person has just such different um, lifestyles and rhythms and you absolutely have to respect it. And um, I run the whole productivity community and the course, which um, I, the first thing I mentioned is always just the one of every single person works differently and there is no right or wrong and whatever works for you. Um, that's all it has to do. It has to work for you. Um, when, to your question of like, do I adjust my approach to other people who are not like myself? Yeah, I'm just um, super tolerant to those things. Like I actually don't mind or care how other people run their lives. It's definitely something in the professional context where you just have certain expectations and you have to live up to a standard, um, which I insist on. And I mean, I've just been lucky at StartNet because I essentially got to hire the entire team and that every single person at StartNet lives up to the standard is, and is incredible in their own senses. So I um, maybe just the, the ruthless answer to your question is just the one of, I just don't surround myself with people I, uh, yeah. <laughs> who, are, who are not on a similar kind of, let's say, at least professional wavelength. Mm, I like it. Now let's touch on PuddlePod. You mentioned it and I can see a t-shirt says PuddlePod on it. The listeners probably can't see the video, but I can see it. So I'm, I'm in actually in the midst of launching a community as a step two to this podcast called Curiosity Center. And I know you've launched a community and it's going really well from all I've heard. Tell me about that. Like, what to you is what does great look like in community building, and and what have you learned over the, I think the last twelve months you've been doing it, or maybe a bit less than that, about building community? Because the reason I say that is because initially building it back to that trust point 
is really hard, right? Because you don't have any runs on the board. And how do you get those first believers to either back believe into you or believe into the community you're building? So what have you learned about community building specifically through PuddlePod? <laughs> um, I mean, the first one with like any kind of program or community is expectation um, setting. And the second one is the most important thing about the community, which is um, it comes back to people helping people. And just really, really important to remember that you are not the hero. You're not the central person. You actually, if you're truly running a great community, the real point of differentiation and when a community becomes great is when actually people help each other and you are not the middle person. So I can dive into both of those in a bit more detail, which is expectation setting. And that is, we have, I've run so many programs over the last four years, like from accelerators to fellowships to, to the now public pod. And it always comes back to um, expectation setting. What I mean by that is you can have, um, you can pour in hundreds of hours into something. If you set the wrong expectations, it, people will have the worst experience. You can put no hours into something. If you set the right expectations, people can still have an incredible experience. So it's so much about upfront, just being very clear. What are you getting? What are you not, not getting? Which is a really good learning right there. Um, and the second one is around um, people helping each other. I think the biggest mistake which, um, which people make with community building is they think there needs to be a central person. Everything revolves around they need to be helping every single person within the community, which is absolutely the wrong approach. Like a true community, when it works incredibly well, is when people get to help each other. So maybe specifically to PuddlePod is I set the expectation at the very beginning. Hey, you see me right now on this kickoff call. You will only see me again eight weeks later in our wrap-up call and everything in between of that you're going to be helping each other and I'll put you together into pods of four or five people and you get to catch up every single week with each other and you will only get as much of this community as you put into it. And that's almost like the expectation setting where like people don't expect me to be there and, and they expect, and I, they know my expectation of them, which is like they need to put in lots into the community to get out of it. And the other one is then setting up the rules, right structures for people to actually get and support each other, which is those little pods and which is just one of the structure structures we've got in public pod. Um, maybe another little learning in there is um, is always just giving some um, every community a little bit of magic or like a little bit of playfulness or gamification sort of thing, which I've done really well in PuddlePod is um, I've got an integration with HeyTaco, which is a Slack integration, which means that every single time somebody does something in the community that other people like, they can give them virtual tacos and there's a leaderboard of how many tacos did you get this week or month. And it's just this really nice way of incentivizing the right behaviors, which is the community helping each other. Oh, that's awesome. You've given us four specifics there about how to build community. I'm really glad you mentioned that because as you would know, communities become this buzzword where everyone's now building a community, but I think you've really distilled it down to what a community actually means. So thank you for sharing that. Now let's put on your start made hat, your startup tech ecosystem hat, and I've got a bunch of questions here. I mentioned earlier, I want to ask you about Startmate, but ask you about the economics behind Startmate. And just to give you some pretext, a lot of listeners of the show are from different industries, so they might not actually understand an accelerator. So if you can kind of share it in a simplistic format, how the economics work. And I know you've mentioned a number, number, number of podcasts that accelerators struggle to make money. <laughs> so one, what is the maths of an accelerator in terms of how much you can share publicly? Um, and two, what has helped Startmate get there? All right, great question. Okay, let me go all the way back, which is what does Startmate even do? 
So um, we started off as an accelerator, which essentially means, um, and this is important, like all we care about is founder success and actually getting founders to the next stage and the next level. Um, whatever that is for themselves, whether it's customers or fundraising, um, etc. So the important thing is also not running an accelerator as a business, but actually like really caring about the success success of of the customers behind it. Startup itself now helps three different types of customers. I would say like the first one is um, the people building it, um, well the people founding the business, which is the founders. Um, so accelerators, we invest in the company at the latest valuation. We help them for three months. We have another program for founder, which is called the Founders Fellowship, which is for people to find co-founders and even start a company, which comes even before the accelerator. The second set of customers is um, anyone looking to join a startup. So if you're looking to join a startup, we've got a women fellowship, a student fellowship, and an engineering fellowship, which are essentially programs to help you um, find your next kind of startup job. And we also have a, a First Believers program, which is for angel investors to go into um, and invest into startups as well, which is a very, very practical program. So you actually get to see dozens and hundreds of startups and capture your thoughts and kind of get a reality check whether you are or aren't a good investor. So that's kind of like the background here. And then mm-hmm. um, I mentioned that accelerators are terrible cash flow businesses. Um, yes, absolutely. There's, um, there's a couple of different accelerator models out in the world. So the, the first one is um, is the most common one, which is um, a, a university-backed accelerators, which um, usually are off the back of any university wanting to support the alumni, which are great initiatives, and usually come with a little bit of money and it's kind of like the next stepping stone for university students. The second kind of business model for accelerator, and yeah, as you can imagine, that accelerator doesn't really make revenue outside of the university supporting it. The second revenue model is government grants, which uh, where the government, and um, depending on the country, Australia has actually had quite a lot of government grants in the recent years, New Zealand as well, um, get grant money for two or three years. The problem with that is it's like, it's literally like you're getting money for two or three years. And if you don't figure out how to pay for your expenses, you just die after two or three years. And actually figuring out how to make money as an accelerator, um, especially within two or three years where the feedback cycles of founders are like 10, 15 years, is incredibly hard. The third model is the venture-backed model, which um, which means big VC funds invest into the accelerator itself. Y Combinator in the US is a great example of that. That can work. It's very focused on VC, um, which then leads me into the startup model, which is unique in the world, where it is completely different to anywhere else, where every single mentor in our program invests personally. And firstly, every single mentor is a founder or an ex-founder and invests personally $10,000 all the way up to $500,000 into the fund which then invests into the startups themselves, which really gives you that skin in the game element of I truly care about your success because I'm literally personally invested. Whether you're going up or down, like I am part of your journey. Um, all right, so how does start make money? Finally, that yes. question. So um, we make money in four different ways. And um, the first way is um, on the management fee of the fund itself. So we don't charge founders because we invest in founders, we invest $120,000, but we actually, um, as part of managing the funds, charge a 20% management fee, which is upfront, a one, once-off management fee. VCs charge 2% every year for 10 years, and at start with, we essentially, because we deliver most of our services um, in the first three months, and we charge 20% upfront. The second way we make money is actually carry. So um, as the fund succeeds, we return that money to investors, but 20% of the profit of the fund actually returns back. I mean, at StartMed, actually, funny enough, it returns back to the top performing mentors, 
because every fund actually gets to vote on the top mentors and they actually get money back. And now we've also set it up that Startmate Operations, PYLTD, which is the operating company, receives mm -hmm. money from the carry as well. All right, I'm already, already almost finished. The other two revenue streams which we have at Startmate is actually our fellowships. So as we help people transition into startup jobs or help write angel investors, we have programs where there's a participation fee to, to participate. Um, and that is, um, depending on the program, anything between um, $500 to $5,000, um, which we get up front. And the last part is actually sponsorship fees as well, because as you can imagine, if we have 100 incredible people as part of a fellowship, the biggest problem that startups have is actually finding great, ambitious people. So startups actually pay us to be the first people to be able to hire out of one of those fellowships. So they pay mm -hmm. us sponsorship fees to be literally like their first AMA speaker or get super exposed. So they actually are the first people to be able to hire the pool. It's such a good model. It's almost a flywheel where it all kind of connects into each other, right? Now, the other one I want to talk to you, ask you about is relationships and people. And, and the context here is you meet and know and people know of you in the thousands, right? Someone goes to your LinkedIn, your Instagram, there's thousands of people following you, but you can't keep in touch with everyone. And you probably don't want to keep in touch with everyone. So how do you decide who to keep in touch with and, and who, like you mentioned Mason and your good friends now and you go for runs and swims and all that. How do you decide who to keep in touch with? Because I know one part is the Startmate program where they're in the program, so you're conversing during the program. But then once the programs are over or once the fundraise is over, how does Michael at a personal level keep in touch with people either they inspire you or you want to learn from them or they just become friends because you'd meet so many, right? Like how do you filter through that? Yeah. Great question. Um, um, there's like, um, I actually almost see that as, um, circles or like an onion where you've got different layers and the first layer for myself is, um, kind of my, my family and my closest friends. So my closest friends, um, I mean, that's an easy decision because there's only a couple of them. And then we literally keep each other updated every single week because we're part of this elephants group where we um, talk on Slack essentially all the time and we help each other set goals. Next kind of layer is kind of my wider family and friendship group, which is like um, actually just close personal friends and, and family, which is roughly 40, 50 people. And I actually weirdly write a monthly newsletter, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is summarize what happened in the last month and to all of my friends and family and whether they like it or not, they get an email from me. Um, and it's always lovely to actually get replies back there. And then the next layer, which is the one you're talking about, which is um, we get exposed to thousands of people and how do I choose um, or how do I keep them updated? Um, I don't have a great answer for this one because it is often just one around like, who do you resonate with on a personal, ba uh, on a personal basis? But maybe one interesting tidbit, which I might have for you is, um, I have a Google sheet, which I call the awesome people database. <laughs> oh, nice. And I literally capture, um, anybody who I come across, I come across in my life who I'm like, this is a high flyer, or this is somebody awesome in my life who I want to stay in contact with somebody who I want to be working with in the future. And they might be actually two or three steps removed sometimes as well. And I might have only had a 30-minute conversation with them, but I actually genuinely am intrigued by them or they have a different way of thinking or they have challenged me in a really interesting way. And I literally have a reminder on my phone every single week to think about the last week. Did I meet anybody who falls into the circle and capture them there? It's almost like building out my future hiring roadmap of awesome people I want to work with. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I actually do the same thing. The addition that I have to that is I write three points of the conversation I had with them if I met mm. them. 
so that if I speak to them in a few months, I kind of can go back to my notes and go, okay, this is what Michael and I spoke about. So then I can ask them about their family or their friends. And as you know, that's a good trust builder because if you remember people's family and their personal life, they, they go, okay, this person's made the effort. Cool. Yeah, I love that. Now, one thing I'm curious to ask is, and I work with a few students. I know you work with thousands of students or, or startup founders. A lot of people have ideas. Like you hear it at the dinner table all the time, right? I have this idea. I have that idea. I want to change the world. But going to the next level is where they fall off. So the question I'm curious is, let's suppose I have an idea to start something or solve a problem. What's the first thing you suggest I do? Mm. Um, it's My answer is always going to be the same one, which is talk to the customer. And that is literally what we keep repeating over and over again in the Accelerator and the Founders Fellowship. There's nothing more important than talking to the actual user who's going to be paying you for that to really understand, is this something that somebody has a big problem with that somebody's willing to pay for? Or is this just an idea which is going to go nowhere? So many people start by building a product or actually get stuck because they're like, oh, this is way too big of a problem and there's no way I can ever get that. And 99% of people actually get stuck exactly there. And then if you are truly curious and want to pursue that, talk to the person who would buy this from you. Talk to 10 or 20 of those people. And if those kind of customer interviews result in a genuine pain, which people, um, yeah, like a hair on fire problem, then you can go into the next stage. And I can talk through that as well of how to go about that, but essentially into the product building side. I think that's a good starting point. And then, as you mentioned before, you've written a lot of blogs that I'll direct the listeners to check out. I know you've spoken on specific topics, including elephants, actually. So if anyone's interested, I'll include that in the show notes. Now, the other question I'm curious is, and I know you mentioned you alluded earlier about your journey as Tatmate, going from operations to CEO, and I know in other podcasts you've spoken about your learning experiences. I'm curious, we're coming towards the end of the year. We're recording this in December. Do you do any practices that you don't publicly blog about that you just do either with your girlfriend or yourself that you set goals and milestones for the new year? That's one. And two, who helps you with that? Like Nick Crocker spoke about having an executive coach. I think Ben Hudson's his coach who he sits down with and that's kind of his kind of thought process. How do you do that? So do you set goals? I know you set goals, but how do you set the goals for the new year in a private sense? And who helps you to kind of clarify those goals? Yeah. Um. Yes, absolutely. Um, I set goals and um, to be fair, I put most of those goals out publicly, just almost like for accountability for myself. Mm. And um, and I just like the whole concept of building in public as well. And so the first kind of starting point is actually the easiest one, which is we need goals as a company and start made. <laughs> so that's mm. always a great starting point because yeah, and the whole company and everybody working here wants to know what we're up to. Um, and again, like I called myself accountable to those to put them out publicly. I actually do a whole talk in front of the whole StartMate community, which is happening next week, to, to walk them through the strategy and what our goals are as well. And the next level down is, is the one on a personal basis of um, what work is in your whole life and where are you going next. Um, and I have that framework called Elephants, which is from the Crocker, where um, I have my closest friends around me, essentially, and we set ourselves goals for the next 10 years and then work back to three years to one year, etc. And the cool thing in that matrix as well is that you actually have roles in there too, which is um, not just work goals, but you actually have your health goals and your financial goals and environmental goals. Um, and you can kind of decide on those kind of sections yourself and family goals and etc. cetera. Um, and the cool thing is you won't know the answers to all of those, especially on like 10 years, three years, one year. But once you start filling out those boxes, they suddenly start to 
then make much more sense because if you do want to um, live in that big house and have five kids, etc., you do need to be financially somewhere, which means for your work life and um, for your job and it works something else again. And actually fitting those boxes together, they actually then um, hopefully all fit nicely together and you start fitting them out over time. And to your question of like who actually helps me with this, um, two um, people in, in particular. So like in my elephants group is definitely one. So it's just essentially my closest friends where we help each other to challenge each other on those goals. Are they ambitious enough? Are they too ambitious? Um, and kind of help calibrate where we're going. And the other person is um, just like um, Nick Crocker mentioned, like my executive coach, Ben Hudson. I have the same executive coach as Nick Crocker, actually, funny enough. And he's incredible at um, being able to to help me calibrate of like, where am I going professionally? Um, and But also, where am I going as a person? And what kind of um, skills, attitudes am I de- 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 um, um, developing? Mm. Now, last question before we go to final sprint. If, if you could pick one founder, founder you've met or founder you've never met, that you could have a coffee with every fortnight, every month and just learn from, who would that founder be? And it doesn't have to be someone you met. It could also be someone in the US or someone who's built a big business. Is there someone mm. you look at, you go, I wish I could learn from them and I wish I could build a relationship with them? Yeah, interesting. Um, first person who comes to mind is um, is Eric Torenberg. <laughs> In the US, mm, Eric yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is um, a um, he's built essentially on deck, um, which is very similar in our fellowship models at Startnet. But he's also um, part of a venture capital firm as well as runs his own podcast. And I just feel like everything I see from him, from his, um, especially his writing on Substack, I am always incredibly inspired by the clarity of his communication and just what he's achieved um, with. In the last couple of years, is absolutely impressive. So that's one person I would yeah, love to have a fortnight to catch up with. Mm. Eric, if you're listening, get in touch. <laughs> All right, time for the final sprint, Batco. So rapid fire round, 60-second um, answers hopefully, and then we'll let you go to your next meeting. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? Oh, non-financial, uh, non-financial investment. Um <laughs> um birthday present which i got last year from my girlfriend which is an electric scooter um mm. and um it's just incredible zooming around sydney or melbourne um and getting into the to the office in seven minutes rather than the 30 minute commute <laughs> how good is there one thing you want to learn in the next six months um yes absolutely um so uh, the big one on my mind is storytelling um i started has expanded so quickly and so fast and uh, but i would love to tell I love to tell the story of Startmate in, a, in an inspiring fashion to hundreds and thousands of people. Is there one person or quote that inspires you? Oh, I've got so many, um, but the, the quote which I've got stuck right now because I tell it to every single Startmate Accelerator and Fellowship cohort at the beginning of the cohort is um, today is the worst you'll ever be. Um, which is just that idea of um, every day from here onwards, you can get 1% better and learn. And it's an it's incredibly inspiring thing to me that like in two months' time, we're going to be a better person than we are now. And last one, if there, if, is there one um, piece of note that you could write to Michael in December 2022 and, and look back and you'd want to achieve, what would that be? Um, I think it comes... Um, 
comes back to energy management for me, like really consciously designing your days and your rhythms. And, um, and even when things don't go to plan, to just have that extra buffer in your day to be able to work through those things. So really consciously design uh, the energy of every day, every week. Mm, that's kind of full circle. It goes back to the initial question I asked about how you design your energy to be the best best self every day. Awesome. That's the finish line, Michael Batko. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I feel like every time I speak to you, I'm inspired and and hopefully the listeners have got a bit of, bit of an understanding of who you are and wish you all the best and keep in touch. Thanks so much. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.